Morning, Valley Bible Church. Good to see you all this morning, and it looks different up here. Uh, while well, we had a full stage for, for Christmas, but uh, glad for all the people that helped yesterday to reset the building because it was a lot of work, so thank those folks. We are back in John. We've never left John, but we're continuing in the series. Advent is over. Holidays are over. And so we're actually moving toward um, the death of Christ, moving toward his betrayal, his arrest, his trials, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. That last part of the book is coming upon us now. And so this morning we're going to read the story of Mary who anointed the feet of Jesus. It's quite an interesting story. And I ask you to turn in your Bibles then to John chapter 12. We're in the 12th chapter of John, and we're going to read this morning verses 1 through 11. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. So as is our custom uh, to honor God's word, would you stand please as we read it? And I invite you to give close attention to the reading of God's word. John chapter 12, Verses 1 through 11, the word of God. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. and They came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. And God's people said, thank you. Please be seated and pray with me, please. Father, in these uh, strange days that we live in, we thank you that you are the ultimate of the universe, seated high and holy on your throne, and nothing will change that. And we turn to you this morning that we might meditate on your precepts, that we might consider your ways, that we would delight in your statutes and not forget your word. Would you deal bountifully with your servants, that we may live and keep your word? Would you, in your kindness, open our eyes that we might see the wonderful things from your law? We approach you through the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, humbly and with gratitude. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. What has it cost you to follow Jesus? I mean, think about that for a minute. Has it been costly? 
here living in America, it doesn't seem like it costs a great deal. I don't know how many of you subscribe to Voice of the Martyrs, whether you get the magazine or you get the emails. And there was a story, this last story, of the the uh, situation in India where there are many in India who want India to be completely Hindu. So they have no tolerance at all for Christians. I read the story of a 27-year-old man named Kandi, and he was a, a Hindu who came to Christ in 2018. And from that time on, he led three of his brothers to Christ and uh, had a Christian wife. In June of just, just this last year, he was attacked by a mob. And as he was being dragged away, he called out to his wife, I may be killed tonight. Never give up your faith, even if I am killed. And he was that night. Just months ago. We don't hear of those things. Uh, we are so preoccupied with our own little stuff going on in, in America and our own lives. And yet uh, there are many uh, throughout the world who pay an ultimate tr- price for their faith in Christ. Uh, I don't know what we suffer. We might suffer a reputation sometime, a little bit of money, inconvenience. But it costs something to follow Jesus. There is a cost to devotion. There is a cost to discipleship. Our story this morning is about Mary who gave a cost. Yes, it was a material thing, but it is symbolic of something much, much more than just a perfume that costs a lot of money. It's symbolic of her giving her own life because Christ gave his own life for us. And that's part of what this story is about. So we're going to look at the story. We're going to see Mary, we're going to see Judas, we're going to see Jesus, and we're going to see the Jews themselves. Uh, Everybody has a part to play in this little drama, and it will help us focus on uh, the greatest gift that was given to us and the the cost paid for us. So, first of all, in verses 1 through 3, we see this. True devotion to Jesus will indeed be costly. It will cost us something. We see this in the life of Mary. If we are going to be devoted to Christ, if we are going to be followers of Christ, if we are going to say, he is my Lord, he is my Savior, I am his disciple, I love him, I will give myself for him, that means we will give ourselves for him in some ways. There will be a true cost to devotion. And Mary gives us this incredible um, uh, example. Now, In the first couple of verses, we have the setting, and it's important to understand this. It says in verses 1 and 2, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover. Uh, What we're seeing is uh, uh, John gives some really good uh, temporal cues, uh, if you will. He he gives us some timing to, to show us what is happening and when it's happening. Because right now everything is moving downhill. Everything is going is going to move very, very quickly to the crucifixion of Christ. And this begins it. Uh, Six days before the Passover, then in verse 12, he's going to say, on the next day, it's Palm Sunday. The next day, he's going to triumphantly enter into Jerusalem. So next Sunday at Valley Bible Church, it's going to be Palm Sunday, even though Palm Sunday is quite some time off. So we have an idea when this happens. Six days before the Passover, this is uh, the Saturday night after Passover had ended, before Palm Sunday. So there's a supper that is taking place the night before Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem. It says that he came to 
Bethany. Remember, he had gone from Bethany to Ephraim, which was about 12 to 15 miles north, to escape the impending doom of the, uh, of the chief priests and the Pharisees who wanted to kill him. But now he's coming back. He's just a couple of miles away from Jerusalem, and he comes to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom he raised from the dead. He, this, that, you may have caught that twice that was, that was uh, spoken in the passage that we read. So Lazarus plays prominently, and his, his being raised from the dead was a big, a big, a big thing. It was the, the, the greatest miracle that he had done. But it doesn't say that they were at Mary and Lazarus's house. It says, so they made him supper there. Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Martha was serving. Mary was worshiping. It's almost like a return to the passage in Luke where we first saw this family of, of uh, Lazarus and Martha and Mary who became good friends with Jesus, and he loved them dearly, and he loved them dearly. <clears throat> they loved him dearly. And at that, in that instance, remember, uh, Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, and she was listening to him, and Martha was scurrying about, and she gets mad at her sister. Lord, aren't you going to do anything because I'm doing all this work? And she's just sitting there like a bump on a log. That's what my mom used to always say to us. Don't just sit there like a bump on a log. Is that an Idaho thing, or is that a thing? I don't know. No. Anyway, so she was just sitting there like a bump on a log, and... Um, Jesus kind of gives her Martha an attitude adjustment, telling her that um, Mary has chosen the better part because she's sitting at my feet and listening and she's worshiping. And so we seem to have a return to that, that situation. There's no indication that Martha is upset or there's any angst like there was at that time. But that's kind of what we have. But where are they? Well, John's Gospel, if you remember when we started the Gospel of John, 93% of the material of John is original to John. The synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have much of the same material and all the same stories, and they're retold in different ways for different purposes, but 93% of John is peculiar or original to John. This is one of those few places where John includes a story that was included in some of the other Gospels. In fact, all four Gospels have a story of a woman who anoints Jesus with costly perfume. All four of them do. There's John, there's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke's account is a little bit different because it tells us that he was, uh, Jesus was in the house of a Pharisee, and that that woman was a woman of loose morals. She was most likely either a prostitute or a woman was, that was uh, very promiscuous. And this happened much earlier in the ministry of Jesus. And remember, the Pharisees were upset that this, uh, that this woman would come in and Jesus would uh, let her touch him. This is a story that is told in Matthew and Mark. And it is, uh, we, you know, we think it's the same story. We're quite certain that it is. John gives some details that Matthew and Mark do not give. Matthew and Mark give some details that uh, John does not give. For instance, we learn from Matthew and Mark that this happened at the home of Simon the leper. Simon the leper. So this was not the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Simon the leper. Obviously, he wasn't a leper anymore, or um, uh, they wouldn't have gone there. He had been healed. And so they were at the home of, of Simon the leper who had been healed. Lazarus was there that Jesus raised from the dead. 
What was the dinner conversation like there between a healed leper and, and a man who was raised from the dead? What was that like? So what was it like to be dead? I don't know. What was it like to be a leper? Yeah. Well, when I came out of the tomb, I pulled my, you know, the, the bandages away, and I saw Peter, and he was like, whoa. And I was like, dude. And he was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, and my hand would just grew back, my fingers, and people were going, oh. And so... They're telling all these stories. They probably were. I bet you that was, it was fun for them to recount what Jesus had done for them. And they're reclining at the table, and Martha is serving them. And the woman who comes in is Mary. In both Matthew and Mark, it just says, a woman came. She's not, she's not listed, or she's not named. But John tells us that detail, that it is a woman. Later, um, as we read the scripture reading, you see that Judas Iscariot is the one who pipes up. But in Matthew and Mark, it just says some, some disciples were upset that, they were, that she was uh, wasting this money. It appears that uh, uh, Judas was the one who, who originally objected and the others joined in. So you, you get the stories coming together. Another thing that, we, that is unique about Matthew and Mark is they say that Mary anointed the head of Jesus. John tells us that she anointed his feet, which are true, both. She did both. She anointed his head, and then she anointed his feet. They, Matthew and Mark have different purposes, and uh, John has a different purpose, the anointing of the head. Oh, we'll get to that in just a minute. I'm, all I'm telling you is we, we've got the setting, and the setting is, is that uh, Jesus is at the home of Simon the leper, in Beth- Bethany, with Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead, they're reclining with the other disciples while Martha is serving them. And then comes verse 3, the key verse in the passage. And I want you to note, as I read it to you again, it's brevity, it's simplicity. There is no dialogue. There are no words of Mary to Jesus, no words of Jesus to Mary. It is just very simply described, and it says this, Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's really quite, a, quite beautifully stated, simply stated, and just tells us all that we need to know. Um, we see that this woman, Mary, comes in, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus, and she does this wonderful thing for Jesus. Um, I think it's important to notice that, that the character of righteousness is developed over time. You don't become righteous just the moment you become a believer. And, and I say this because think about Mary. The first time we saw Mary was some maybe a year or two before, and she was sitting at the feet of Jesus then, and she um, she, was, uh, she, was, she was praised for that by Jesus. The next time we see Jesus, uh, next time we see Mary, rather, is uh, when Lazarus was dead in the tomb, and the Lord had already spoken to, to Martha, and Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And he said, your brother will rise again. And Martha had this wonderful um, uh, confession of faith. Yes, I believe that you are the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And then Mary comes because Jesus calls her. And what does Mary do? Anybody remember? She falls at his feet. 
She falls at his feet. Where is she now? She's at his feet. Where was she the first time we saw her? She was at his feet. She was consistently developing this character of righteousness at the feet of Jesus. Every time you see this woman. And this character of righteousness is developed over time. And her focus was always upon our Lord Jesus Christ. And she brings this perfume, this nard, it's pure nard, means it's not diluted in any way. It comes from either northern or eastern India, and uh, very, very, very expensive, undiluted. They would have diluted it with, uh, with olive oil, so it would have gone a long ways, but not nearly a pound, uh, a Roman pound was about 12 ounces, but still a lot of liquid. And she first pours it on his head, but then she, she pours it on his feet and anoints his feet. Now, anointing, you've seen that throughout the scriptures. It is, a, it is symbolic, it is ceremonial of uh, consecration, inauguration. Remember, um, Samuel poured oil on the head of, of Saul and anointed him as the king. And so that anointing of the head would be symbolic of uh, the inauguration of the king. We're going to have an inauguration here pretty soon of a, of a brand new president and uh, and a new administration. And so there's all the the ceremony and the pomp and the circumstance, and we don't do anointing, but it's kind of an anointing in itself, isn't it, of an inauguration of a new um, administration and president. And so in the scriptures, that's true as well. Usually it is the greater um, anointing, the lesser, like a priest would would anoint another person or even an object sometime that consecrates it, that sets it apart. And so that's what Mary is doing. It's symbolic of her consecrating, inaugurating Christ in his death. Because Jesus has already told us that that's the significance of this. She is anointing his head to indicate uh, symbolically that he's becoming the king. He is the king. She's anointing his feet as an act of humility that is going to prefigure Jesus washing the feet of his disciples that we're going to see in the next uh, chapter because it is, it, is, it is very humble to be at the feet of another person washing their feet. So it is symbolic of humble devotion and service. She wiped his feet with her hair. It was a no-no. I mean, who would do that? particularly in this culture, because women did not cut their hair, and they always had their hair up, particularly in public, and to loose your hair, to, the, the, to, to untruss uh, a lady's hair, was only done by someone of loose morals in public. But in the house, in the home, it was okay. And so she lets her hair down, and literally, and then she wipes his feet with her hair. Certainly, this is a sign of, of humility, uh, a, a household slave would use a, a towel in wiping someone's feet. It's certainly a, a symbol of love because letting down the hair, there's this, there's intimacy. And I don't mean in any sense, like we think of intimacy oftentimes in our culture, culture to have some sexual connotations. No, intimacy as in familiarity and closeness. They're part of the same family. They are family. And she's comfortable in his presence, letting her hair down before her Lord and in humble love and in this very close relationship, wiping his feet. What a, an act of 
pure love and devotion and sacrifice because it costs a lot. The perfume was of great value. She's, uh, uh, they, uh, we think that Martha and Mary and Lazarus had some money, but this is a lot of money. We'll see in a few moments. A lot of money. It may have been of a family heirloom that had been passed down, this, this vial of this, this very costly perfume. I think that also gratitude is part of this as well. She is so grateful that her Lord has brought her brother back from the grave. Love, devotion, humility, sacrifice, gratitude, all of it wrapped up in a symbolic gesture that is looking forward to his death. That's where this is all headed. And the effect is that the whole house is filled with this fragrance. It's like the the glory of the cloud of the Lord filling the temple or filling the tabernacle. And Matthew and Mark both said, you know, wherever this is spoken about, this woman will be remembered in this fragrance, this sweet-smelling savor. We're talking about it here in, in 2021, what Mary did, and we can almost smell that perfume this morning. So some lessons for us. Jesus deserves the very best that we have to offer. He does. He deserves the best that we can give him. Sacrificial, thoughtful, honest, heartfelt worship redounds to the glory of God. And it echoes and it fills the universe when our worship is is sincere and heartfelt and sacrificial when it is full of gratitude, when it is full of devotion, when it is full of reverence, when it is full of love, when we sing, when we sing with understanding, when we give ourselves to Him. Yes, there is an extravagance that is wasteful, right? I mean, the televangelists who buy the jets and all that stuff, it's like, ah. That's an extreme, though. And there might be extravagances that are wasteful, but we should always be seeking to give the very best that we have to our Lord Jesus Christ and never scrimp and be chintzy or cheap in giving to him. Mary spared no expense. You know why? Jesus spared no expense. And neither should we. Uh, uh, Oftentimes in the name of uh, good stewardship, you know, we will settle for the cheapest paint, the cheapest person to do the job that, you know, we'll we'll, we'll just settle because we want to take care of the Lord's money There's extravagance and there's cheapness as well. Mary spared no expense. They spared no expense in the temple, in the tabernacle. And I'm not advocating us being luxurious and I'm spending our spending. I'm just saying we must give God the best in everything that we do. The key is that God knows our heart. If she had just done this as a show, I think the Lord would have roundly... um, spoken to her as well and denounced her. But he didn't because he knew her heart. And humility is at the heart of love and devotion. There was this sincerity of devotion. And so for all of us, wherever you serve the Lord, whether you're serving just by being here and worshiping, we give to him everything that we are because he has purchased us. And we belong to him, and he's given us the greatest there is. And so if you are a teacher, those who are out there teaching the kids today, preparing and praying for them, and, and trusting in the Spirit of God as they teach them, 
if you are a leader or an administrator, if, you've been, if you help uh, uh, with the building, whether it's cleaning or repairing or construction, doing it to the best of our ability. I, I'm so grateful to our, where are our ushers and our greeters this morning? Where are they? Just raise your hands. Thank you for your service during the pandemic, being here, gloves and masks and all the stuff. It's uncomfortable. It's costly. Our guys back there at the technology table who come in early, they come to practices, they stay late. We have so many people who give the best that they can, and we should always do the best that we can and never just, uh, it's just good enough. No, we always give the best. Second of all, sometimes we need to let our hair down. I mean, just be real with Jesus. Can't be fake with him. She was being totally honest. She let her hair down and said, this is all I am. It's what I am. What the, love, love, what the Lord loves and what the Lord accepts is a broken and contrite heart. And when we hide our sin from him, it is not hidden from him. If we, if we are proud and arrogant, if we try and serve in order to be seen, we're not letting our hair down. She was family. She was comfortable letting Jesus see her. She didn't care what others thought. And sometimes we're so concerned about what others are going to think about us at church. How we look, what I wore, how, my, how I wore my hair. I got a mohawk. I got my hair shaved, whatever it may be. And we're so afraid of how people are going to think of us because we're really good at setting rules, aren't we, for other people and expectations. And what is culturally acceptable, what is not culturally acceptable, rather, may be acceptable to God. Dancing, singing, <laughs> way you wear your hair, whatever it may be, travel in other, in other nations and you'll see, oh, wow, we would never do that in America. But it's okay there to let your hair down. We can be kind of stuffy here. So sometimes we need to let our hair down and just be real with God and open up our hearts to him. Finally, the final lesson here in this first section is that the language of worship is sacrifice. And sacrifice always costs something. We are to be worshipers. Daily, weekly, I urge you, therefore, brethren, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service of worship. Living for Christ, walking with Christ will always cost us something if we are true worshipers of the living God. So we see this in Mary, and the story continues in verses 4 through 6 where we see that true devotion to Jesus will be opposed. And we see this in the life of Judas. If you truly devote yourself to Jesus, if you truly sacrifice to live for him, uh, people are not going to have it. People are going to criticize you. People are going to misunderstand you. People are going to ridicule you. People will oppose you. People might betray you because of your association with Jesus Christ. Verses 4 through 6, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, stop right there. 
we know about Judas. He's a disciple, for goodness sake. He's a disciple of Jesus Christ who was intending to betray him. Remember the story back in... This, the first time he was mentioned in John's Gospel was when Jesus was saying those hard words, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't follow me. And people are going, I'm done. This is too weird for me. Some of them walked away. And Jesus said, so where are the rest of you going? You going to stay here? And that's when we have Peter's confession in John. Lord, uh, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not myself choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So this is the second time that Judas is mentioned, and so we've known of all along, here is one of Jesus' disciples. This is a sobering thought that even amongst our own, there might be false disciples, and so it is. Because the Bible predicts it here. The Bible predicts it everywhere. There will be tares amongst the wheat. There will be goats amongst the sheep. There are, even Paul said to the Ephesian elders, from your own selves there are going to be men arise false teachers we should never be surprised why see last week depravity depravity and some people you know what was, what was judas's motivation for following jesus obviously it was money why you know what was the motivation of the chief priests and the pharisees it was power and along with power comes money and so money is always involved. In fact, uh, there are only three things, money, sex, and power. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Those will always be the wrong motivations. And his motivation for following Jesus obviously was money because he says, says, he says, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor instead? Seems reasonable because in Matthew and Mark it says well, the, Jew, the, the disciples they were the ones who, that, who were objecting to this. And Judas probably said at first, and the rest of them probably go, you know, he's got a point here. 300 denarii, that's a, that's a year wages of a working man. 40, 50,000 bucks today. And they're going, you just wasted it. We could have helped somebody with this. I mean, in a couple of weeks after Passover, you know, we could have taken this money and they didn't see what was coming, did they? They had no idea what was coming. By the way, you might think, oh, perfume can never cost that much. I did a search this week. There are some perfumes that are over $100,000 an ounce. Why? <laughs> what if I'm allergic? It's not an essential oil anymore. It kills me. It's just unbelievable. So this is not out of the realm of possibility. But did he care about the poor? Of course not. It says, now he said this, that John tells us, because we know all this comes out later, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. He says it right out. Sometimes we need to call sin, sin. He doesn't say, oh, because he was a misguided guy, you know, and he really did love Jesus in his heart. No, he didn't. He was a devil. He was a thief. 
He was a hypocrite. He was a liar. He was materialistic. He was selfish. He was an imposter. That's what he was. And sometimes we need to call sin for what it is. It is sin and identify it. It's important that we do this. And he was just paying lip service. He was a thief. He used to have the money box. He obviously had some skill in that area. He was probably good with finances. But because he had the the keys to the lockbox, he would take out some money whenever he wanted to. And he was serving himself. And not the Lord and certainly not the poor. Pious words are oftentimes the mask of a sinful heart. Some people mask their true unrighteous character with a facade of religious piety and religious deeds. You know what? uh, I've told you this before, but hypocrisy, the word hypocrite, comes from Greek um, uh, tragedy and comedy. It comes from the, the, the first thespians. And they would, uh, they would take a mask and put a mask on. And so they were, they were play acting. They were pretending. Well, the mask said one thing, but on the inside they were something else. Interesting in these days and where we all have to wear masks, isn't it? That our identity is masked. And that's what, the, what hypocrisy, what the word hypocrite actually meant was wearing a mask. So the people do not see what's going on on the inside. That's you say one thing and you are another. And this is exactly the case with Judas. He said one thing, but he was totally someone else. Um, The ultimate betrayal of Jesus would not be an isolated act. It would not be that he was out of character. It was well within the character of Judas to ultimately betray his Lord. So, some lessons. People are going to misunderstand your devotion to Christ. They will. If you are a follower, truly devoted disciple of Jesus Christ, and you're really seeking to live for him, people will misunderstand. People will ridicule you. They will see your faith and your love of Christ as extravagant and extreme religious fanaticism. You know the word, um, where the word fan comes from? Fanatic. I mean, you can live and breathe all things Seahawk and be a fan, right? But as soon as Jesus is that important to you, wow, you're over the top. Way too much. I mean, you can wear the hat and the jersey and all you talk about and your chicken scores everywhere you go but if you got a jesus hat and a jesus t-shirt and you're reading the bible people are going man you are way out there and some of you have experienced that i experienced that as a new christian um my family thought i had just gotten bonkers over the edge in my i mean it's one thing to go to church i mean that's fine right but come on twice a week three times a week giving your money That much money? What? You're a fanatic. People will misunderstand your devotion. But we understand, don't we? We understand how important it is for us to be totally devoted to our Lord because he gave everything to us. Second of all, the seeds of bad character are being sown in one's life long before some major incident. 
Um, bad character is sown for a long time. In fact, the enemy uses hearts that are already dark, right? That's what he did with, with, uh, with Judas. You, you, you hear the story, the guy that, you know, uh, they found uh, three girls, you know, that were in his basement trapped for three years or something. And what do the neighbors always say? Oh, he was really a pretty nice guy. No, he wasn't. <laughs> he was a horrible man. And there was, there was something in his life, always in his life, that was demonstrating that. The seeds of bad character are always being sown and always growing and bearing fruit in some regard, always. Yes, people are good at masking it, but we need to understand that these things don't just happen overnight when there is a great moral failure, for instance, of a pastor in, uh, you know, of some famous pastor. It happens all the time. It, it wasn't an isolated incident, believe me. In the same way that the character of righteousness is developed over time, as it was with Mary, so the character of Judas was developed over time. And so it is with us. So all the more for us to be at the feet of Jesus. Third lesson from this section. You can't masquerade as a disciple of Jesus Christ. You just can't do it. Because he knows. He knows your heart. False disciples will always use good causes to mask their evil desires and selfish motives. And they're often self-righteous, seeking to make others look bad, that they might look good. But in the end, the Lord always knows your heart, and he knows each and every one of us. And so let your hair down and be real before him. And develop that good character by sitting at his feet. And we want to get to Jesus' response now in verses 7 through 8, where in those verses we see that true devotion to Jesus will be honored. He does honor our devotion. Jesus does that. He will defend our honor and he will come to our aid and he will accept our worship and the cost of our worship. Verse 7, therefore Jesus said, let her alone. How do you think the disciples answer when he said, stop it? Woo, sorry. Because I think there was an edge to his voice, at least some volume. Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. I like the way Jesus comes to her defense. I really love this. Um, he didn't scold her for being impulsive. He didn't scold her for being wasteful. The Bible elevates women. Culture doesn't. I understand that. And this culture didn't. It may have been part of the culture to take women for granted and to take advantage of them. But Jesus is having none of it. You have these men all piling on. And he says, stop. They had no idea what the real score was. This woman knew. She had a spiritual sensitivity. She had an intuition as to what was happening that they did not have. He said, let her alone so that you may, she may keep it for the day of my burial. It's, it's a really hard. That clause is really hard to interpret and to translate and to know what it means because it says that she may keep it. Didn't she just waste it and pour it out? There may have been some left over. I don't think there was. I think the, the most important thing is what does he mean? And what she meant by doing this was that she understood that something momentous was happening, whether it was unwitting, like Caiaphas's uh, prophecy about Jesus dying in our place, or whether she understood that he was going to die, this was prophetic as well. 
It was symbolic. It was foreshadowing his death to come, and that's the point of what he's saying. He says to them, and probably shocking to the ears, preparing my body for burial. That's where we're headed in the story. That's the direction we're going. And he announces that she announces the foreshadowing of his very death, and that's the main point here. Then he says, uh, for you always have the poor with you. That in itself, if he just said that, would be somewhat callous. But he says, but you do not always have me. It's not callous. It's uh, meant as a, a comparison. He's only stating a reality. Tomorrow you have opportunity with the poor, and then the next day, and then the next day, and the day after that, and next year, and the year after that, and for millennia, there will always be opportunities for you to help the poor. But this is a once in an eternity opportunity. The Son of God, Jesus incarnate, days before his crucifixion and burial and resurrection, this woman demonstrates something that we're talking about today, foreshadowing, symbolically anointing, inaugurating his death. Once in an eternity thing. He's saying, I'm leaving you. You're going to have lots of opportunities. But she only had this very one moment to do this. It's a symbol that he's about to die. Some lessons. Make the most of opportunities. Because the days are evil. I don't know if how many of you read my wife's article this week and kind of what the story was there. Making the most of an opportunity. You never know. Um... What opportunities are right before us? The days are, are, the day, are the days evil? Boy, these are troubling times. And we must make use of opportunities to be truly devoted and sacrifice to the Lord and worship Him and live for Him. Second, your sacrifice of true worship and devotion do not go unnoticed by God. And you might be saying sometimes, well, what good does it get me? You know, I'm walking with God. I read my Bible. I pray. I don't do all the stuff I'm not supposed to be doing. I do all the stuff I'm, I'm supposed to be doing. And still, I don't have enough money, and I'm sick, and everything is going wrong. He knows. He knows. And you will be rewarded. And there will be a time when he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. I know it wasn't easy, but I was there with you. And he will see you through. But we must not lose sight of the fact that he does see all. Third, the death of Jesus is at the heart of worship. That's not morbid. It just, this is the point of this, real, of this whole passage, really, because we're, we're moving toward the death of Jesus. And we need to embrace that, that uh, the wages of sin is death, that in the big picture of our Christian worldview, uh, mankind has rebelled against God, not against a government, but against God. And it is sin that is deadly and kills all, and we are, we are lost, and there is no hope except for his death on our behalf. And so our sacrifices of worship, our acts of service, that are extravagant sometimes, are only acceptable through him who gave the greatest sacrifice. We come to this altar and we, we give everything to him through him. 
through his death and his resurrection. And Mary knew that. She knew what he had done for her. So verses 9 through 11 now. True devotion to Jesus may be dangerous. According to the Jews and the Jewish leaders. It might cost you something. Money could have cost more, like the man in India who it cost his life. Verses 9 through 11, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Uh, These people, what did they want? They wanted to see the miracle worker, and they wanted to see the miracle. Hey, come and see the man who was dead. It's like a carnival attraction, right? What does he look like? I mean, does he look different now? He was dead, now he's alive. He just became, Lazarus becomes a sideshow to the people. All they care about is miracles. Verse 10, but the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. Why? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. The very purpose of the book. These things have been written, these signs, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in his name, you might have life eternal. And many were believing, and so we've got to get rid of Jesus. Now we've got to get rid of Lazarus. He's on our list. How many people do we have to kill to, to quell this rebellion? It's going to get worse. They're going to have to murder their way through this. And that's what they try to do. And your association with Jesus may cost you. If you're associated with him, it might cost you financially. You could lose your job. More and more, that could happen in our society. You could lose your reputation. We could lose our personal freedoms. I mean, uh, we know that what happened this past week in Washington was wrong, right? Absolutely wrong. Unfortunately, uh, now... Um, freedom of speech is being suppressed and it's coming. You know what's coming next for us. Our freedom of religion is going to be uh, celebration of 2020 being over was way premature, premature. And our association with Jesus and our devotion to him may cost us financially, reputation, personal freedoms, Rejection, but we have to remember to live as Christ and to die as gain, right? Remember, we started John about a year ago in Jan- last January. Before that, we were in the book of Philippians. And um, when we were in our life groups talking about Paul, to live as Christ and to die as gain before the pandemic, was that just bravado that we spoke in our life groups? Yeah, to live as Christ and to die as gain. I got that. Do we mean it? Could it happen? It could. Peter says this, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, persecution. Keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler or a rioter. Don't suffer like that. 
But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. So, some concluding thoughts in preparation for the Lord's Supper for us. I want you to think about this story, what Mary did, what Jesus said, what preceded it, the plotting to kill him, what is coming next. It's all going in a very dreary direction, isn't it? The whole story is. So for us, in preparation of the Lord's Supper, in order to be truly devoted to our Lord, spend time at the feet of Jesus. Spend time at the feet of Jesus. This is the the best time at the beginning of the the new year to renew your efforts, to read through the Bible on a regular basis. If you don't read through the entire thing, have some kind of a plan to pray on a regular basis, to start uh, keeping notes and and, uh, a list of people and things that you want to pray for. But be devoted to humility and humbly being at his feet. Mary did. She was always at his feet. We should start there, I think, every day. The feet of Jesus. And also, in order to be truly devoted to our Lord, we must be, we must be forward-looking, we must be Christ-centered, and we must be gospel-focused. The Lord's table is forward-looking, what Jesus was talking about here in this passage uh, was forward-looking. It's all We're always looking not to next week or to 2020 or the next election. We're looking over the horizon. We are forward-looking always to the return of Christ. We are always to be Christ-centered, not politically-centered or nation-centric or whatever it may be. Christ is our all-in-all, all, and we must be focused upon him. And our focus must be gospel-focused. By that, I mean we declare the Lord's death until he returns. This whole story is about the death of Christ. With the death comes the resurrection, but we must remember that we must die with him too. And as we partake of the Lord's table, and I want you to prepare your elements, we are declaring the Lord's death and we are declaring ours as well until he returns. And so I want you to partake in a worthy manner. If you are a believer in Christ, welcome to the table. But let your hair down before him and be real. Don't try and hide anything from him this morning. Confess it. And if you're here and not a Christian, now is the time. Take off the mask and allow Christ to cleanse your heart. So we're going to sing and then... Uh, we will partake of the bread and the cup together.